Well, good morning. It's Jim Patton here again with another MOH podcast. And uh, we're back with another very unpopular message by Winky Prattney. And uh, I say it's unpopular because these messages that uh, Winky uh, used to preach when we were young, they were very unpopular with some people, but with other people, they were life-changing and revolutionary. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to present you with a message now that uh, is not, again, not the kind of message that you hear very often in churches. Uh, in fact, I don't know when I've heard a message like this in a church. Um, but if you think you can uh, get by without this, good luck. So if you, if you got the nerve and you don't mind listening to something unpopular, here we go with Winky's message about revolution through rebuke. This morning we're going to talk about a revolution of rebuke. We're going to talk about how to rebuke. Obviously something very wrong with a lot of, um, a lot of our society today. And I believe it is because Christians have forgotten the command. I think it's in Leviticus 19.7 or 19.17. And it's called, Thou shalt not in any wise suffer thy neighbor to commit sin. Thou shalt not hate thy neighbor in thy heart. Thou shalt by any means rebuke him. And the Bible is filled with scriptures on rebuke. And I believe it's because Christians have not been taught how to rebuke sin that uh, society is decaying around us. Jesus said that we were to be the salt of the earth. And I know one thing about salt. They used to use it in the early days to retard corruption. They used to put it on meat and things like that so that it wouldn't uh, rot so quickly in the sun. And that's what a Christian is supposed to be. He is supposed to retard corruption in society. I believe if every Christian left a society, there was no gospel witness there at all, the society would fall to pieces within three months. You are the only ones who are keeping this nation together, the Christians in this, this nation. And the influence and the power and the force that you can exert in society will determine whether or not the United States of America falls around your ears in the next five years or not. So it is important to know how to rebuke sin. It's also important for one other reason. In the studies of revivals, uh, down the past, it seems to me that there are only two basic things. If these two things are put into practice, there will always be a revival, a spiritual awakening. There have been many, many different emphases on revival. There's been different emphasis on certain truths of the Word of God. There's been different emphasis on methods. God has used many different men. But there's always been these two basics. The first one is prayer. Now, you can't have a bunch of people praying together in earnest, excitation to God, praying, maybe even fasting without something happening. And so the first thing of revolution is if in your school you want to see revolution at work, then you would set up some prayer meetings with other Christians, concerned Christians, and begin to pray. Uh, in our school, we wanted to somehow touch our school for God, so we got together 40 to 50 people that really wanted a Christian uh, work on campus, and we said, we took this, all the names to the principal and we said, we'd just like to know if we could you know, have a classroom to meet and share some things. We're all Christians from different churches. And the principal said, no. He said, I'm sorry. We said, we don't have any Christian clubs of any kind in this school. And he said, if we allow you in, we'd have to allow everybody else in. He said, we've got 52 different religions here or something. And he said, we just can't afford to have it. So we couldn't have it. So we met outside of school. Uh, one that Friday uh, afternoon, and we just simply met to pray, to see what we should do. We met in this little home, and we talked about things, and we prayed, and we never did get finished praying about all the things we were supposed to pray about, so we met the next Friday to pray again. There were more people, and we all got in a big, huge circle, and we prayed, and we kept on praying, and we didn't get, quite get finished, so the week after that, we prayed again, and eventually, we had about 60 kids meeting in the home, praying, and out of that began a work which, which uh, grew, and we saw 60 new young people won to Christ that year because of a prayer meeting that developed into an evangelistic thrust. You can't pray before you go to school or to work or to college. You can't pray and ask God to prepare your heart and get you ready for evangelism 
that day without bumping smack into somebody who wants to know about the gospel. And this is a wild thing because you don't have to grab a soapbox and, and just be ready there like Snoopy to pounce on everybody from off your tree, you know. You, uh, all you have to do is, is to sort of put your radar up in the morning and say, okay, Lord, I am here, I'm available to talk to anybody that you want to bring across my path that's open to the gospel. And you say, all I want is a sign from them. And I'm ready to go. Zap. And uh, you, these little dudes will create all kinds of uh, opportunities for witness, and you just set yourself up ready to go. So prayer, that's the first thing. The second one is love unity. You're wearing badges that say agape is in. You must understand, practically as well as theoretically, the love of God. And that love is an unselfish choice for the highest good. And when you live unselfishly and choose others' good, you will demonstrate the love of Christ, even when it hurts to do it. It's easy to love somebody who's very lovable. But God challenges you to love the unlovely. And part of the... If you turn now to John 17, which is the Lord's Prayer, you'll find this is the heaviest prayer in the Bible. It's the only long prayer that we have of, uh, of the Lord Jesus. John 17... And in it, the Lord is praying for the Christians. And he's praying for you, too. So you should read this prayer and study it. In verse 11, he says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And then he says, I have given them thy word, in verse 14, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. Verse 17, set them apart, or sanctify them, through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I set apart myself, that they also might be set apart through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also that shall believe on me through their word. That's why this prayer applies to you. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Do you see, Jesus is saying that the single greatest testimony to the world is the oneness, the unity, the family of God. And there's nothing more mind-blowing for a sinner to see a group of kids from all different places and races and creeds and colors meeting under the common grounds of we have a common, our Father is God, we're all in the same family, we're all brothers and sisters, and not only say it, but live it. And that's, Jesus said, it'll be through this that the world will believe you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So there's Jesus' prayer. He is praying that you will have unity, praying that there will be this unity of love. Now the key thing, a lot of people say, yes, it's wonderful to have love and fellowship, but it requires two things. And basically, it requires being honest with each other. And that means the, the, the willingness to uh, help each other by praise, by honest commendation when somebody's done something right, to help each other, edify each other, as the Bible would. And it also means the willingness to rebuke. It means the willingness to, to stop by saying something for the Lord's sake when something is going out of the way. Now, if we are not willing to put the second one in, we'll get sort of soft and squashy in our Christianity. It'll get all, all off into all kinds of weird trips and then just wipe out. In other words, sin can erode out the heart of love. Uh, if you just have this bottom one and you don't have this honest love, 
and this willingness to help and build up each other and trust the Christ in each one of you. If we don't have that, then we'll get hard and we'll lose the, the spirit of, of unity. Now, on the back of your sheets, revolutionary faith, there are a few things on that, on trusting your brother in Christ. You're not to trust his flesh. You're to trust the Christ in him. You're to always think the best. One of the first signs of backsliding is a nitpicking critical spirit, especially on, on, uh, on new converts. Love them. Expect the best of them. Trust the Christ in them. If they've really given their lives to Christ, then trust the Christ in them. So, rebuke, of course, because Christians don't even know how to rebuke each other in love, they never bother to do it in society. And for this reason, we're having the kind of collapse we have today. So let's talk about rebuke. Now, the Bible is filled with that. It says, if thy brother sin against thee, go and see your brother. Get it right with your brother if you've done the wrong, and then if he has, rebuke him. And the Bible tells us how to do that. I'll give you some scriptures on this. Um, first of all, let me tell you how not to rebuke. We're going to bring another tract out, and you'll have it in a week's time, called Changing Your World. And in it, I'll have all this material typed out and printed for you, except the little goodies I'm going to give you, the illustrations and things. Now, this is not the way to rebuke. Somebody comes up to you and says, uh, oh, would you like a cigarette? And you say, no, thank you, I'm a Christian. Now, when you go to a sinner and say, how would you like to come to church with me? They very rarely say, no, thank you, I'm a sinner. See, and to the, to the sinner, if you keep saying this, every time, every time you refuse something, you connect it with Christ, he gets this idea in his mind that being a Christian means all the things you don't do, which is certainly not. The only reason why I don't do all those other things is I don't need them. Then Paulie says, it's like, like having three shoes, man. You've only got two feet. And that, this is... This is uh, this is what happened one time. I have a friend of mine, he was up Fort Lauderdale, and a whole bunch of Christians invaded there to do some witnessing. And there were some girls that had big Bibles, really huge Bibles, three of them. You could tell they were Christians, you know. Had Bibles this big under their arms, sort of thing. Walking off. And, uh, and here's these girls in a couple, a whole bunch of surfies all around them. and said, hey, hey, let's see, carrying Bibles for, what's that for? And they said, oh, we're Christians. And they said, well, what's a Christian? He said, we don't smoke. This guy was smoking. So he said, well, so what? You know? Tell me what a Christian is. We don't drink either. Eyeing this guy with a can of booze in his hand. And the brother says, oh. And he says, and just in case you're interested, we don't go to dances. And the guy says, yeah, and they all walked away. And there's my friend there, see, and, and he's, a, he's about 40-something, but he was dressed up in, you know, in Bermudas and and tennis shoes, and he sort of, he's a, he looks like a, a teenager in disguise sort of thing. And here's over there, and he, uh, he's got a real idiotic face, he's big happy smile, right, splits him right in half, he's like a big watermelon, he's got a face, face like the great pumpkin, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and he, he saw these kids, and he said, hey, hey, he says, would you like a Coke? And they said, oh yeah, sure, if you're dreaming, so, took a cross, and he sat down for about a quarter of an hour talking with them. And uh, then he said, hey, what did you think of those girls there? And they said, oh, man, really well. You know, let them talk for a while. And he said, I got news for you. I'm with them. <laughs> and he said, I, I don't buy the way they, they talk to you, but let me share with you where the Christian is trying to answer that question. He said, I wish I could say they all got horribly convicted and they all bowed their heads and gave their lives to Christ. He said, but the girls have done too good a job. But he said, they, they sat and they listened for a half an hour, and I asked a lot of honest questions. And he said, when they left, one of them said, thanks. I never really heard anything like that before, and it really, it re it's really something else. Now, there is a way to rebuke without, without offense. Now, you're always going, don't expect to be popular if you're a Christian. If you think being a Christian is really the end thing, you've got another thing coming. Because Jesus didn't come up to a bunch of people and say, now, down the road here we have a big white wagon drawn by 40 prancing horses and there's a band on the back playing, playing uh, with glad assurance we are marching to Zion or something and, 
and I wish you would all jump on the bandwagon with me as we go into Jerusalem. One young man came running up to Jesus and he said, Lord, I will follow you whithersoever thou goest. But he didn't know Jesus was going to the cross. Now, Jesus doesn't invite you, remember, to a party, but to an execution. We are dead men on furlough. And dead men aren't, aren't too impressed by other things that hurt them. If you get a dead man lying down in the coffin, you can smash him across the face and he doesn't do anything. And when you're in Calvary, you say you're crucified with Christ. It's a very, very defenseless position. Your arms are nailed open and you just can only love. You can't smash back or hit back or hurt back. Now, this kind of revolutionary faith we're talking about, when you are to testify, you first of all are never to rebuke without love. Never rebuke without love. And I'm not saying that you, you have to have squishy feelings about a person when I say without love. I mean you must make sure that your rebuke is motivated by a sincere concern for the other person, that you really care about them for Jesus' sake. And that's why you're saying what you're saying. There's two words used in the Bible for rebuke. One is the word anacrino, and the other word is the word diacrino. Now, a lot, of, a lot of kids, when they want to say something about, you know, some problem that they see, they're scared to do it because they say, doesn't the Bible say we're not to judge? See that? Now, this is the word the Bible uses when it says don't judge. But there's another verse that says judge ye among yourselves. In many verses that, where God commands Christians to judge and rebuke. But there's a different word used. You can't see this in the King James Version. But this word means to damn or to pass a sentence upon. In other words, you are going to hell now. See that? And this word means, if you like, to discern, to make a difference between. It means to examine. Now, only God has the privilege of passing sentence because only he has all the facts and only he knows when the last the last fact is in. So we're never to go up to a person and say, now, as far as I, I'm concerned, you're going to hell now. See, that's, that's called judgment. And God says, don't you do that or you'll be judged. Damn somebody else and you'll be damned. That's what God says. But what we are to do is to use the word of God to discern, examine, and, and, and say, now, you know, God says here, this is what we should do. And uh, if, if we are not doing this, then God's word judges us. Do you see what I mean? We are never ourselves to pass the judgment and say, Here's, you know, this is the word, and for Jesus' sake we're to do this. Now, for Christians, when, when we, you're rebuking one another, and you must do this, it's a command of Christ. Jesus loved his disciples. He loved them more than anybody else has ever loved the disciples. But the moment Peter said something dumb, Jesus was on him. Bang! Peter... He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, here's, you imagine just saying, Jesus, oh, you're wonderful, and then he says, get thee behind me, Satan. You know, I really shoot you down in flames, but he did it in love. And not only that, Jesus did it in all kinds of places. This very high religious leader invited him to his home, probably gave him a real fabulous meal and all that. And the guy is sitting there thinking, boy, Jesus will really be impressed. And Jesus rebukes him right across the table, calls him a white and a hypocrite and everything else. Right across the table when you're sitting as a guest in the man's house. Now, boy, that's kind of a hard thing to do. But Jesus loved men, and that's why he rebuked them. Now, let me ask you a question. If you saw a friend of yours sitting in a house that was burning down, looking out the window and laughing, would you go past the house and say, you, you think he's obviously lost his mind. Would you go past and say, well, he's happy, you know? <laughs> Or would you say a word, say, hey, what are you doing up there? The place is burning, man. Come down. Would you say something like that if, if you really cared about that friend of yours? Now, if that house burns down, the man will lose his life. If a man lives in sin, he will go to hell. And do we care? It's just his life. Do we care enough about the real part of him, his soul, to rebuke sin? If we really love God, we will hate sin, really. And there's a test. Your love for God will be measured by your hatred of sin in your own life and in others. And uh, 
When I say in love, here are the signs of not loving a person when you're rebuking them. First thing to do is, somebody comes and says, you know, I think, I think that somebody else is doing such and such. And you rush right up to the person and say, you're wrong here! See, that's the one way not to do it. And then another one is going, oh, oh really? You know, you show alarm and complete shock. Now, I've had kids come up to me and tell me all kinds of hair-raising things, and I say, is that right? You know, um, you never just show shock or alarm. Somebody will come up and say, I cut my mother up yesterday. They say, wow, you know. <laughs> but you're not to go, oh, oh, you know, I can't believe that of you. See, believe anything of a person that's selfish. Don't make a snap judgment, in other words, is what I'm saying. Don't get proud about your own spirituality. Well, friends, I've been in the way a pretty long time, and I'd just like to share with you this, this little word on how to be spiritual, because after all, you need it, see? And that's, uh, that's, again, not the way to do this. And don't go and bother, if you're going to judge, don't go and bother to talk to the person directly. Talk about them to all your spiritual friends. So you never go and see him, talk about him. And uh, tell God about everybody else's sin and failure compared to your own. <laughs> so this will really develop a good critical spirit in your life. And never beat the same problem you judge in somebody else's life in your own life. That's the main way to judge. And Romans 2.1 has a very interesting thing. It says, if you go around condemning others, and again, that's something we're judging others, then that proves you've got the same problem in your own life. It's kind of something else. And it says, when you point the finger, in effect, the three pointing right back. Now, when you do the second one that's discerning, you're not pointing the finger. You're simply sharing the word of God. And you, you're, you're concerned about Christ in this person's life. Now, here's the proper way to do it. You're to keep questioning till you know all the important facts in the situation. Just keep asking questions until all the facts are in. And this is very important because on a youth of the mission team, for instance, one... One young man, uh, you know, he, he'd been doing a lot of witnessing. And one, one time he came back and they smelled smoke on his clothes, see. So uh, they didn't think much about it. I said, oh, well, you know, he's probably with a bunch of people smoking. And they came back into the... One day this guy was just in the tent and he knocked this uh, pillow over and under there was a pack of cigarettes. And uh, they were immediately going to rush up this guy and say, now, look, this, you're really sinned here, you know, and if you kind of do this stuff, we'll have to send you home, see. But they thought they'd wait and they'd pray about it. So they wait and prayed. And when the guy came back, they said, uh, they were talking for a while, and the guy said, um, just went around, he said, what do you think about smoking? He said, oh, man, I hate it. He said, this sort of guy. And he said, I, just yesterday, he said, I was in this house, and the whole place was full of smoke, and I nearly died. And he said, I, when I got through witnessing this guy, he gave his life to Christ. And, and he said, look, um, he said, I'm finished with my life. He says, here, take my cigarettes. And throw them away someplace, and he said, I brought them back to show the testimony of this thing. And so they, they said, wow, you know, because if they'd have gone and shot their mouth off, that had been a, a, a cause of disunity. Do you see what I mean? So I'd never criticize until all the, you know, never, never say anything until you know enough facts to say something. And then the, the best, best deal, of course, if you're rebuking a Christian friend, is pray and then ask God for a good time to speak with them. You know, sometimes we can be alone and, and always, always see if you can share something good about the person before you say something uh, <laughs> on the other side, you know. Don't come up and say, now let me tell you all your faults, brother. Yeah, then share, honestly commend him first on something. You know, if he's, if he's doing a whole bunch of weird things, see, commend him on his zeal and then come back and tell him, show him, you know, the problem is. And, and point them out lovingly. Don't point them out in a critical attitude. And um, a good way to do this is if you can find a time or remember a time in your own life when you did something similar or exactly the same thing, then share with them. Say, you know, I noticed something and this may be a help to you. When I, when I was, uh, you know, X number of months, weeks, days, hours ago, I, I noticed this. I had a tendency to do this. And um, I, I noticed in, um, when I was, I was watching you there, this... Uh, the same kind of tendency. And let me tell you what happened to me. And then you go out, show the problem, humble yourself, see, by showing how in your own particular life it was messed up, and then come back and, and share with them how help Christ helped you over that. Always give them a positive way after you point out the negative. You see what I mean? Now that's, that's the way to do it Christian way. 
and get their confidence first. Don't go up to people, you know, that they have no confidence in you at all and just slam out with some kind of rebuke. That's the first way to blow it. And, and when you pray for the person, ask God to bless them and to help them back into the right. Now, having said that about Christians, and we'll put all this out, there is a key secret in rebuke when you're rebuking unsafe people. And here it is. To rebuke a sinner, all you have to do is to say a word on Jesus' behalf. And I'll point out what I mean. A sinner, no sinner ever thinks really of God unless he's been under the sound of the gospel for a long time and he's highly convicted. Sinners don't really care about God. See that? And what you have to do in rebuke is to bring a sense of the consciousness of the presence of God into the situation. See that? He's not thinking about God. He's running by his own rules. And when you say a word that brings the consciousness of Christ into the situation, he is rebuked automatically. See that? It comes in click, 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 click like this. And now the key of it is on Jesus' behalf. You are not to say, now look, I happen to be offended by what you're doing. See that? Now look, I don't like what you're doing here. Not a question of what you like or what you don't like. That doesn't matter. It's a question of whether it hurts God or not. See that? And when you say, wow, do you know how much you hurt God by the thing you just said? It's a totally different story than saying, wow, do you know how much you hurt me by the thing you just said? Can you see the difference? You're bringing God, the invisible third person, into the conversation. And that carries its own built-in stabbing conviction. It's a weird thing. And uh, that's a key thing. Whenever you rebuke in society, you're to say it on Jesus' behalf. If you're identified with Christ, you'll say things for Christ. Now, this is beautiful because when you're witnessing to a sinner, he'll probably say to you, look, I don't care about God. I don't care about God. No good talking to me about God. And you say, yes, but he cares about you. I, don't, I understand. I've always said this if a sinner said that to me. I said, I understand that you don't, why you don't care about God. I never cared about him either. The beautiful thing about God is that he cared about me. And he loved me. And he loves you. And he cares about you. And that's why he sent me here. You might not be looking for God, but he's out looking for you. And I'm vanguard on him. <laughs> See, I'm one of his agents. And when you get, if you can get away from me, he's got some other agents. And they'll track you down. We are, if you like, you're a bunch of John the Baptist and... and uh, Joanne the Baptist, comparing <laughs> the way of Christ. See, that's what we're doing. Let me show you just practically how it, some things have happened in my life. The Lord will give you all kinds of weird ways to do this. Uh, uh, I was in this place getting one of the negative shots for one of these tracts. And the man said, the thing wasn't going right. And he said, oh, God damn this thing. And I said, do you really think he will? See? I said, you know, I, I know God very well, and I'm sure he's concerned about you and your business. I don't think he wants to damn it. See, and the guy, you know, he was really shook. But he said, oh, he sort of tried to laugh, but, you know, he never swore again in my presence. Never once. See? That's only a simple word, but you can... And I was, I was uh, playing tennis, uh, just a couple of weeks back and uh, I was playing with this guy and he's pretty heavy games <laughs> and uh, he missed about four shots in a row and he took the name of Christ in vain just blurted it out and uh, I you know, was right in the middle of the thing and I waited till, till they were walking back it was only a second they were walking back to collect the ball and I said hey leave the praying to me I'm a Christian <laughs> so, and I said, I guarantee I have much better results. And, uh, and he, he shut up. He didn't say it anymore after that, see? And then as a result of that, at the end of the time, he spent about 15 minutes telling him about what Christ had done in my life. He's like, see, all you have to do is say a word on Jesus' behalf. And it brings Jesus into the situation. And um, sometimes this can be very, very heavy for a sinner. Um, I remember we were coming back from a camp, supposed to be very much like this one, and we really felt close to the Lord, but we had a long, long way to drive. And it was about two in the morning, we're still driving. We're all hungry as lions, and we pulled into this hamburger place. And uh, we were just full of praise to God. The mountains and the air seemed full of God. You know? 
rolled that out, boom, the agents came out, boom, 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 walked across to the hamburger stand, and here's this couple of college kids cooking hamburgers. And this guy was making his hamburgers, and then out with Christ's name, just like this. And just sort of, you know, I, and oh, it was just like somebody stabbed me in the heart. And I said, oh, wow. And I, and I said, Lord, if he says that again, you give me some words to say to this boy, see. And straight away, wham, out comes this thing. And I said, hey, do you know him? And he, he, said, he said, who? I said, Jesus Christ. I just heard you know I haven't known him very well. I just wondered whether you did. <laughs> see? And, uh, and he said, uh, well, I, sometimes I think I know, and other times I, I think, I, you know, and he was sort of trying to tell it, that he really gets shook. And then we started to talk, and that conversation opened up, and they closed the hamburger stand down. And we moved outside the hamburger stand and, and talked for four hours to those young people. Yeah. Six in the morning, and, and kids were horribly chopped up with conviction. Everybody come across to the stand just moved across into the crowd, and it just grew and grew and grew. Wow. Now, see, God can do things if you're willing to say something for him. It doesn't have to be fancy, and God will give you words. Um, it's weird how God can give words. We're in a, a university in Canada. And we got in, this, um, got in this lift, and this guy punched the button, and uh, instead of going down, the lift went up. Uh, no, instead of, instead of going up, the lift went down. That's right. And he said, oh, damn, this is... I wondered, uh, he says, I don't want to go down. I want to go up. I said, that's a good idea. I said... <laughs> <laughs> and then I had a tract in my hand, and I said, Here's, this will help you go up instead of down. <laughs> and, uh, See, the Lord will give you all kinds of weird, weird things to say. Uh, another key thing about rebuke, uh, I'll just give you two quick things if a person asks you to, to compromise your testimony in some way. Here's a quick one. That it's, it's, a, it's sort of a, an interesting one to say. One good way of doing it is always to create a question on the other person's mind, see? So you don't just say, and just leave it dead. You, you say something that will raise a question in their mind, they'll ask you another question. Well, what did you mean by that? Or something like this, see? And uh, I've told some of you this story, the girl that had a Bible, and she was, you know, she had a Bible on top of her books, and she was running to class, and she ran the corner, and this big old football player was also running, he bashed right under her, knocked her books all over the place. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. She was a pretty girl, so he said, I'll help him pick up the books. <laughs> he was picking these things up, and he picked up the Bible, and he looked at it, and he said, what's that? And she said, it's a Bible. And he said, yeah, you read the Bible? And I said, like, do you believe in Santa Claus and the fairies too? You know, sort of things like that. And he said, why do you read the Bible? And she said, oh, it's full of riddles. And he said, what do you mean full of riddles? She said, would you like to hear one? If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. Right. <laughs> and he said, if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. Born twice, you don't want. We're thinking about it all week, see? And then at the end of the week, uh, 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 coming out of the library, and he saw this girl again, and he said, Hey, he said, I've been, he bothered me about the Christmas. <laughs> She'd been praying for him all week, he didn't know that thing. So, but, uh, but he said, What did you mean by if you're born twice, you die once, if you're born once, you die twice? What did you mean by that? And, and, uh, and she said, uh, Well, if you want to find the answer, read John chapter 3. And she gave him a little testament mark. And she said, I want you to read this through, and then I'll explain it to you. Goodbye. See? So the next week he read all through this John. He's read John 3, and he said, well, what does it mean? And, and then she said, well, when you're born once naturally, you'll die twice, spiritually, see, and, and physically. But if you, if you come to God, he'll make you a brand new person. You only die once, physically. And uh, she led him to Christ. Now, you can use things like this. Here's another one. If somebody asks you to compromise your Christian testimony, um, well, no thanks, I'm dead. No thanks, I'm dead. <laughs> and then you can explain to them, well, no, I probably would have to do that before, but those things don't mean anything more to me. Because I've got a new life. The old person that used to enjoy those things is dead. And then you explain to them about the Lord. See, there's kinds of weird things you can do. Now, uh, from here, one key thing about rebuke, as we finish up here, is that you should use intensity of rebuke 
you know, the strength of the, of the rebuke you put in should depend on three factors. Should depend on uh, your age, your relative age to the person you're rebuking. Now, it's obvious if your parents are doing something wrong, you're not to come there like the big authoritative, now listen here, your parents, you should get on the stick here. I'm a Christian, and you aren't, and boy, you really should get on the wall, so you know. This is a bad thing. You must take, the Bible talks about respect for elders. And when you lose that respect, it's one of the signs of the last days. So when you rebuke, if you're rebuking a parent, you should just, just throw it and say, oh, wow, Dad, I, I wish you wouldn't do that. You see what I mean? Just something like this. Boy, that, that really must hurt God, Dad, if you do something like that. Just, you know, it's just a, you play it really cool if they're older than you. If they're younger than you, you can put a little bit more thumbscrew on it. <laughs> so now listen, kids, listen, you're not supposed to do that. You know that's a dumb thing to do, see? You can, depending on your age, and uh, then of course on your relationship too. Your relationship to the person. It's obvious that if you know a person well, that... Um, if you know a person, it's sort of weird. If you don't know a person at all, it's very easy sometimes to, to, uh, to just completely ignore it because you think, oh, well, you'll think I'm a think or something, you know. And then if you know a person very well, it's also easy to ignore it because you'll still think the same thing. They'll think I'm a think or something if I say that. Do you see what I mean? It's only in between when you sort of roughly know them that it's easy to rebuke. But you must also be able to rebuke on both extremes. Now, David and Nathan were the greatest of friends. But uh, Nathan was a man, like all Christians are supposed to be, who had the courage to put principles above personalities. And you know when David sinned, and he thought nobody knew about it, but God did. And God was talking to Nathan. And he said, Nathan, got a job for you. Go and see your buddy. So... <laughs> Here comes Nathan, and how did he do it? Now, Nathan was only a prophet, and David was the king. Nathan didn't come up and say, listen, king, I know you, David, but I am the prophet of God, see. He said, king, I've got a story to tell you. It's a little story. I just would like your opinion on this story. There was a rich man who lived in the city, had hundreds of flocks and herds, and there was also a poor man who lived in that city, and this poor man had only one little lamb. So all he had, and he loved this little lamb like his own sister, and he took care of it and brought it out. And so this rich man went and took this poor man's only little lamb, and he slew it, and he killed it. And he said, David, what would you do for a man like that? What would you do to a rich man like that? So very cool. And old David, you know, gathers his robes around him in righteous indignation. Oh, what a terrible thing. If I was person, oh, if I, you know, if I knew anybody in that situation, they would be instantly slain and they'd be, go through all these big, you know, finger-pointing things, see. And when he was finished with his tirade, Nathan looks at him and he says, David, you are the rich man. <laughs> see? That was very, very cool, but he did it. Now, one mistake you must not make. This person is my close friend. Therefore, I will not say anything about them. If they're really your friend, if they really are your friend, you should be the first person to be concerned enough to rebuke sin. You don't have to do it in a bitter or critical spirit. You can go and share warmly and say, wow, you know, this may hurt God, so let's take... And you know that. Some of you here in this building have, have been through this with somebody else and they've shared with you a word, wisdom. And the key, the key of this thing, the Bible says, speaking the truth... In love. That's the key. If you have all this, quote-unquote, love, without truth, you'll get sticky. See? And if you just have truth without love, you'll get hard. Now, you must be both able to give rebuke and receive it. If you give rebuke all the time, you're not able to take it. You'll be bossy. You'll be domineering. If you take rebuke all the time, but you're not able to give it, you're a doormat. And you must be both. Uh, able to take and give rebuke. Now, the final thing on rebuke here as we close the session up, it depends on the frequency of sin. In other words, for first-time offenses, you don't have to come flaming out like Charles G. Finney or somebody, see? <laughs> frequency of sin. 
frequency of the fence. The first time, the first time it occurs, it should be in the form of advice. And by the way, this is God's pattern in the home. If a, if a kid if a kid spills their milk and knocks it over or something, then first of all, the mother, if the mother of the dead, shouldn't say, "Ah, look at who's done this! Spills the milk, this milk, milk, milk!" See, not supposed to do all that. And there's no need to shout, and there's no need to get angry when you rebuke. See, there's no need to. Uh, you may get angry for God's sake, but never for your own sake. Jesus was angry sometimes for his father's sake, never for his own. But you are never, you are never. You're never to shout when you're rebuked. You don't have to. Notice this. Noise is not equal to authority. Noise is not equal to authority. The quietest dudes can be the most heaviest dudes if they're saying the truth. So you only have to say it quietly and it really chops home. Somebody who was supposed to be Christian and was swearing and said, I didn't think Christians swore. Just <coughs> chop you know, right into it. First of all, advice. The mother should say, hey, you spilled your milk now. This is, this is what you should be not. Don't put it so close to your elbow next time. Put it out in front. See, that's advice. The second time, Junior spills his milk. You're not to do that. The second time, you say, now, you remember last time? We said, don't put it here because you'll knock it over. You've done it now. So don't do that again, will you? Because if you do, I'll have to smack you. You don't have to shout and scream to say it. You just say it. Warn. Second time, warn. The third time you don't go, Ah, you've done it again. Now, next time, I'll get you next time. You remember I warned you last time? Well, next time, see, that, that gives you the idea that, aha, you don't keep your promises. See, you said you're going to smack me next time, and then this time, when I'm supposed to be smacked, you said next time. And I know my mother used to do this. She, <laughs> my mother had three levels of voice, you know. She used to say, when can you come and get some of you? That was the first level, see. And I'd say, come in, and I'd work for another five minutes. And then she'd say, when can you come and get some of you? And that was the second level, see. And I'd say, come in, be right there, work for another five minutes. And then she'd say, when can you come in, very soon? Yeah, and that was the third level. <laughs> So I knew about that time it was time to pack my bags and move in, see. But the reason why, if my mother had just, on the first time, <laughs> carried out to sit, and, you know, what she could have done is come in the first time and said, Winky, come and get something to eat. The second time I didn't come in, she could have said, come and get something to eat and dragged me away, see. And uh, it's most embarrassing when you're dragged away by a mother to a table or something, see. But I would have listened the next time, because well, I don't want people dragging me away to tables. But the, the third time, just simply carry out what you promised. Now, God does that. God does that. He advises, and then he warns, and then he judges. Wham! Just like that. And he keeps his promises, and that makes you think God is faithful. See? But frequency of sin. Sometimes people sin and sin and sin again, and it will do you no good to just simply say, hey, you shouldn't do that again. Sometimes great sternness must be put into rebuke. If a person has done the same thing time and time again, you're simply not to go on the same thing and say, hey, I wish you wouldn't do that because I've told you so many times. It's time to toughen up under the Spirit of God and say, now look, this is, it's time we got the got down a business here and really lay it on the line. You've got to do this. There must be an intensity of rebuke deepening as to the frequency of sin. Now, boy, you saw this in the early church. Ananias and Sapphira are very deep sin. It would have smashed all kinds of things. <laughs> So Peter said, why do you lie against the Holy Ghost? They'll carry you out of this church. And they did. Died right there and carried him away. Now, I, I know a friend of mine, and uh, he was in business with an unsaved man, and this unsaved friend of his cheated uh, the, the company. And this guy was a, a radiant Christian, and he said, he said to this guy, when he found out this guy had, had stolen all this money, he said to him, look, he said, I got news for you. You didn't steal my money. You stole God's. And he said, I'll tell you something else. You better pay it back to him. I don't care if you ever give it to me, but you better pay it back to God. And he said, not only that, according to Leviticus, you better put some interest on it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the guy said, and he said, I'll tell you, not only that, I'll tell you what you did with it. He said, you used it on booze and on women and on gambling, on horses. And he said, oh, don't be silly. He says, I, I, I never gamble. 
And he said, well, the Holy Spirit didn't tell me a lie. That's what he told me he used it for. And the guy was blustering away. And up came a friend of his. And this friend had some tickets to the races. And he said, hey, man, he says, I've got another hot tip for you. <laughs> I said, get out of here, get out of here. But, uh, and, then, and then this other guy said to this Christian said to him, he said, if you use God's money on that racetrack, I've got a warning for you. If you take and use God's money in direct contradiction to what he said to you now, then you better get your wife to get rid of your coffin. And uh, he sort of looked a bit shook, see. And the other guy said, that's all this business, that's all this stuff. And he said, I just warned him, you can't play and fool around with God. And he said, well, come on. He said, there's no such a thing. He said, look, I'll tell you what. You give me the money and I'll put a bet on for you. And the guy said, I warn you. Don't play with God. And he said, oh, come on. And he took the thing. And he said the following day, he was called up by the police. And the police said, do you know so-and-so? And he said, yeah. And he said, well, uh, a friend of his, he said, um, we just, he said, well, why, why are you asking? He said, is he sick or something? He said, we found him dead about a yard inside the racetrack with two tickets in his pocket. See, you don't play with God. And that happened in the early church, and when Christians get clean, it happens again. You ask for revival. <laughs> so asking for revival. I believe in a God who's not mocked. In the frequency of sin, there was a boy who made a, made a quote-unquote decision for Christ, but he never really repented. And he went back on this decision, and then he began to really mock God. Instead, of, He used to come out Sunday with us to church, and instead, he just laughed and he said, oh man, I don't believe that baloney anymore. And he went out boasting to his friends how he used to be, he tried this Christian business and it didn't really work and he went through all this stuff. And I remember my mother stopping him and saying, listen, Ethel, don't, don't you dare turn your back on God. And, and she, she told him twice and he, he just laughed. And on the Sunday when he and his brother went to church, usually went to church, which he'd stopped doing then, and his brother was thinking of following because he said, well, he seems to be having a good time in that and nothing's happening. He went down to the wharf about five miles away from our place and they were swimming and he dived off and some way, instead of going down, he, he went straight down and he snapped his neck on, the, on that, same Sunday, that same Sunday morning when he was supposed to be in church and went swimming. Snapped his neck and they dragged him out of the water and he was paralyzed from the neck down. And uh, boy, you should have seen his brother. It cut his brother right there. Now, if my mother hadn't said anything, it wouldn't have made any, hardly any difference to the brother. But she'd said, don't play around with what you're doing. And this other, this other brother gave his life to Christ, see? And he came all the way through to God. This other brother took him three days to die. And during that time, he gave his life to God. But uh, there's a close, very close scene sometimes. Now, depending on the frequency of sin, you had to intensify your rebuke. And I'll finish this with one thing that happened in the camp one time. Everybody was getting saved except this one boy. He had, he had seen so many times the gospel and everybody in his cabin was getting saved except him. They're all praying for him. There was kids just crying, weeping over him. And he just sat there doing nothing. So I went to talk with him. I laid out the gospel to him and I said, will you make a choice for God? He didn't say anything. And I said, I said, all right. I'm going to give you just 60 seconds. I'm going to leave this place. And during these 60 seconds, I'm going to ask you to say one thing for Jesus, either yes or no. And when I come back in one minute's time, I want you either to, to have said to Christ, I will give my life to you and follow you in response to that love, or Jesus, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm sick and tired. I'm cutting right out of the church and everything, and I'm going to go and live for the devil. And by the way, that's the only choice you have. If you're faced with the gospel, you do not want to give your life to Christ, God doesn't want you in church, messing everybody else up and turning thousands away from the gospel. If you really believe that Satan will bring you happiness, get out there and try to prove it. And the church will be there waiting to try and put back the pieces when you come back. And this young man came back after a minute, and I was praying that whole minute, oh, Lord, hit him, you know. And I came back and I said, what's it going to be? It didn't say anything. And I said, you know what? When you say silence, that means you're staying exactly where you are, unrepentant before God. And I said, I want you to say something to God. And if I come back and you're still quiet and you haven't said anything, I'll take that as a sign. You're not going to give your life to God. Went away for another minute, see? 
he didn't want to come back and I said what's it going to be silence I didn't want to say I told him everything I knew and I said all right I put my hand on his head and I said Lord Jesus there's a boy here and he's going out into this night like Judas <laughs> and his head went down a little bit see and I said I've, I, he knows all about your love he knows how much you care about him he knows you died for him he's seen all that and I know there's nothing deeper or greater than the cross can reach him. And I said, I, I don't know what else to say to this fellow. And I just quit. This is what I could say. Now I got a pencil and paper. And this is what I mean by intensity. I got this piece of paper and I said, could you give me a full name, please, sir? And I wrote I, and then I put his name out, being of sound mind and sound body, to hereby declare I do not want God to be my father. I do not want Christ to be my savior. I bequeath my body to the ground and my soul to its rightful owner, the devil. Please read this at my funeral. Sign, dot, 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 and I gave him the pencil and paper. And I said, sign it. <laughs> and he looked at it. And he said, I don't want to sign that. And I said, it's true, isn't it? It's true, isn't it? You've just told me you don't want Christ. You'd rather serve yourself and live for the devil. Then sign it. And he said, oh, no, I'm not going to sign that. I said, I don't want any preachers telling lies over your funeral. He was a good boy. He really tried hard. We think he was a Christian. I want to hold this note as a testimony to the world of what happens to a boy who turns his back on the love of God. And he said, I don't want to sign it. And I said, then get on your knees and give your life to Christ. <laughs> and I said, you say Jesus. He said, Jesus. He said, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. He said, I'm a sinner. I said, a dirty, rotten sinner. <laughs> Then he started praying and crying and, and then he jumped off the floor and started to shout and laugh and he hugged everybody in the camp so I guess he must have got saved. <laughs> and we finished, I took, took that piece of paper and I wrote across the front of it in a red, blood-like pencil, paid in full, the blood of Christ. Bow your heads in prayer, please. All right, so that was it. That was uh, Winky's message, Revolution Through Rebuke. Uh, he mentioned a couple things on there that um, we can't really help with. One, one of them we can help you with. One was called Revolutionary Faith. That's a track that is up on the moh.org website. Go to moh.org, click on the discipleship training materials, and uh, under that heading you'll find Revolutionary Faith. The other one he mentioned was one called Changing the World or Changing Your World. I think it was. Uh, as far as I know, that track never got printed. Um, uh, maybe here uh, before long, we'll check with Winky and see if he ever if he ever did that. But I don't ever remember seeing that one, so we don't have that one up there. If it turns out that he has it, uh, we'll get it and put it up at a later date. But that's it for this week, episode number three uh, of the MOH podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs>